Hey folks, welcome back to the Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca. Tomorrow begins jury selection in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who on August 25th, 2020, shot three men in a riot-ravaged Kenosha, Wisconsin, killing two of them and grievously wounding the third. Kyle's being tried on a variety of charges, including the felonies of intentional homicide, reckless homicide, attempted intentional homicide, two counts of reckless endangerment, as well as a misdemeanor charge of weapons possession by a minor. The legal defense to the felony charges will be the legal justification of self-defense. The legal defense to the misdemeanor weapons charge will be, probably, inapplicability on the facts, as well as unconstitutional vagueness. So tomorrow begins jury selection, and with respect to jury selection, news media are reporting that the trial judge, Judge Bruce Schroeder, has ordered 150 prospective jurors to the courthouse tomorrow to be subject to voir dire, or the jury selection process. Judge Schroeder reportedly wants a total of 20 jurors seated, to consist of 12 who will ultimately deliberate a verdict, plus eight alternates. The state and the defense will each have seven peremptory strikes to remove prospective jurors for reasons of preference. So let's take a quick overview of the events and the charges here, and then we'll dive into more depth on each of those. On the night of August 25th, 2020, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse traveled from his home town of Antioch, Illinois, to the neighboring border town of Kenosha, Wisconsin, where he had worked as a lifeguard and spent considerable time as is in the nature of border towns near each other. Kyle's stated purpose was to help protect property from the riots, looting, and arson that had besieged the city of Kenosha since the lawful shooting of Jacob Blake by police two days earlier. Uh, parenthetically, Blake, a 29-year-old black man, non-compliant with lawful arrest, wielding a knife in his hand and was climbing into a car full of children when police shot him. Kyle, trained in medical care, also intended to provide such care to anyone injured that he might come across. For that purpose, he carried with him a sizable first aid kit. In recognition of the violence rampaging through the city, Kyle also armed himself with an AR-15 pattern rifle, open carry of firearms being lawful in Wisconsin. So let's quickly step through the six counts in the criminal charge against Kyle, and I'll also embed that criminal charge in the text version of today's content. So count one is first-degree reckless homicide. This is against Joseph Rosenbaum. So at approximately 11.45 p.m. amidst the chaos of August 25th, 2020, Kyle would shoot and kill Joseph Rosenbaum in claimed self-defense. This would result in the first-degree reckless homicide charge against Kyle, count one in the criminal complaint under Wisconsin Statute 940.02. Uh, by the way, every statute I reference here is linked in the text version of today's content. If convicted of this charge, Kyle is looking at up to 60 years in prison, plus an additional five years for having used a dangerous weapon. Count two of the six is first-degree reckless endangering. This would be of reporter Richard McGinnis. Near to the scene of the Rosenbaum shooting, a reporter, Richard McGinnis, who had moments before been interviewing Kyle, uh, McGinnis would later tell police that he did not think that Kyle was handling his rifle safely and this would apparently be what resulted in the first-degree reckless endangering charge against Kyle. Again, that's count two of the criminal complaint under, now, Statute 941.30, again linked in the text version of today's content. If convicted on this charge, Kyle is looking at up to 12 years in prison, plus an additional five years for having used a dangerous weapon.
After shooting Rosenbaum, Kyle began to run towards a line of police officers who had created a vehicle barricade a short distance down the street. During this flight to police, Kyle was pursued by angry members of the mob, during which he would fall to the street. Once fallen, Kyle was subject to a series of violent attacks by several men. Count three of the criminal complaint is first-degree intentional homicide. This would be the shooting death of Anthony Huber. One of the men who attacked Kyle was Anthony Huber, and while Kyle was struggling to get up from where he had fallen in the street, Huber struck at Kyle's head and neck with a heavy skateboard. Kyle shot Huber with fatal results. This would result in the first-degree intentional homicide charge against Kyle. Count three of the criminal complaint under statute 940.01, again linked in the text version of today's content. If convicted on this charge, Kyle is looking at life imprisonment. Again, an additional five years on top of life for having used a dangerous weapon. Count four of the criminal complaint is attempted first-degree intentional homicide, this of Gage Grosskreutz. Another of the men who attacked Kyle in the street was Gage Grosskreutz. While Kyle was fighting off the other attackers as he struggled to rise from the street, Grosskreutz approached Kyle initially with his hands up in a peaceful gesture, but then swiftly presented a pistol and rapidly closed on Kyle. Kyle shot Grosskreutz, striking him in the right bicep, causing serious but not fatal injury. This would result in the attempted first-degree intentional homicide charge against Kyle, count four of the criminal complaint under statute 940.01, again linked in the text version of today's content. If convicted on this charge, Kyle is looking at 60 years in prison, plus, again, an additional five years for having used a dangerous weapon. Count five is first-degree reckless endangerment, this time with respect to an unknown male. Another of the men who attacked Kyle in the street was an unidentified male who attempted a flying drop kick onto Kyle as he lay in the street. Kyle shot at this attacker but missed. This would result in the first-degree reckless endangerment charge against Kyle as count five in the criminal complaint under statute 941.30, as usual, linked in the text version of today's content. If convicted on this charge, Kyle is looking at up to 12 years in prison, plus an additional five years for having used a dangerous weapon. And finally, there's count six, unlawful weapon possession by a minor. Finally, Kyle's being charged with this unlawful possession of a weapon by a minor charge. Count six in the criminal complaint under statute 948.60, again linked in the text version of today's content. This is the sole misdemeanor charge specified in the criminal complaint. All the others are felonies. And if convicted on this charge, Kyle is looking at up to nine months in prison and a fine. Now, I thought it might be useful to do a quick legal analysis of these various counts against Kyle. Well, brief for counts two through six. With respect to count one, the shooting death of Joseph Rosenbaum, I'll be spending more time as this first event is to some degree a linchpin for all the others. If the shooting death of Rosenbaum looks sketchy, well, that would tend to flow downhill to all the other defenses. On the other hand, to the extent that the shooting death of Rosenbaum appears legally justified, that would also flow downhill to all the others. 
Before I jump into that, however, I do want to mention the sponsor of today's content, CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. In effect, CCW Safe promises to pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event. And those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've had to shoot somebody in defense of yourself or your family and are charged with manslaughter or murder, it's not hard to go through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be helpful to have a partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depends on it, because really it does. I've looked at all the companies that offer similar services, and I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. My wife, Emily, is personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member, you can save 10% on your membership there using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. So let's start with our analysis with the shooting death of Joseph Rosenbaum. That's count one of the criminal complaint. So the first man shot by 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse was 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum in a car sales parking lot. The language of the criminal complaint, presumably written to justify this felony charge of first-degree reckless homicide, provides a telling description of the circumstances immediately preceding Kyle's shooting of Rosenbaum, much of it based on video of the events as well as on the eyewitness testimony of reporter McGinnis. So I'll quote here from the criminal complaint. Quote, The defendant, Kyle, is running across the car source parking lot. Following the defendant is Rosenbaum. And trailing behind the defendant and Rosenbaum is McGinnis. The video shows that as they cross the parking lot, Rosenbaum appears to throw an object at the defendant. A review of the second video shows that the defendant and Rosenbaum continue to move across the parking lot and approach the front of a black car parked in the lot. A loud bang is heard on the video. Then Rosenbaum appears to continue to approach the defendant and get in near proximity to the defendant. When four more loud bangs are heard, Rosenbaum then falls to the floor. Close quote. Now, the interview of McGinnis by detectives is described in the criminal complaint as follows. Quote, Before the shooting, McGinnis was interviewing the defendant. The defendant had moved from the middle of Sheridan Road to the sidewalk, and that is when McGinnis saw the male, Rosenbaum, initially try to engage the defendant. McGinnis stated that as the defendant was walking, Rosenbaum was trying to get closer to the defendant. When Rosenbaum advanced, the defendant did a juke move and started running. McGinnis stated that there were other people that were moving quickly. McGinnis stated that they were moving towards the defendant. McGinnis said that according to what he saw, the defendant was trying to evade these individuals. McGinnis described the point where the defendant had reached the car. McGinnis described that the defendant had the gun in a low ready position, meaning that he had the gun raised but pointing downwards. McGinnis stated that he did not hear the two that would be Rosenbaum and Kyle, exchange any words. McGinnis said that the unarmed guy, Rosenbaum, was trying to get the defendant's gun. McGinnis demonstrated by extending both of his hands in a quick grabbing motion, and that as a visual on how Rosenbaum tried to 
reach for the defendant's gun. McGinnis said that Rosenbaum definitely made a motion that he was trying to grab the barrel of the gun. McGinnis stated that the defendant pulled it away and then raised it. McGinnis stated that right as they came together, the defendant fired. McGinnis said that when Rosenbaum was shot, he had leaned in towards the defendant. Close quote. Now, I'll remind everyone that this narrative of events is not the defense explanation of what happened between Kyle and Rosenbaum. It's the explanation of events provided by the state that is prosecuting Kyle on a charge of murder for shooting Rosenbaum under these circumstances. What's described here is a Kyle Rittenhouse desperately fleeing or relentlessly pursuing Joseph Rosenbaum, who was intent on fighting Kyle for control of the rifle. Now, unmentioned in the criminal complaint, but in evidence as a result of FBI interviews of bystanders, is that earlier in the evening, Rosenbaum had threatened to kill Rittenhouse. Even when faced with the relentlessly pursuing and self-declared murderous Rosenbaum, Kyle did not fire until Rosenbaum had rushed him, arms outstretched for the rifle, and actually achieved contact with the 17-year-old. Kyle is, of course, justifying the shooting death of Rosenbaum as lawful self-defense. That means that Kyle must be acquitted of this charge of reckless homicide unless the state can meet its burden to disprove that claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So it might be useful to do a quick five elements of self-defense analysis of this confrontation to assess the viability of the claims of self-defense. And for those who are not familiar with the five elements, these are the five elements that are the building blocks of any claim of self-defense, innocence, eminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. If you're unfamiliar with these, I would urge you to at least download our free infographic that provides a brief description of each. It's absolutely free. doesn't cost a penny. It's a downloadable PDF. You can get that at lawofselfdefense.com slash elements, because if you don't understand these five elements of self-defense, you can't possibly understand the legal arguments around self-defense. So let's start with those five elements in the context of Rosenbaum. The first element is innocence. Clearly, it was Rosenbaum who was the physical aggressor here and Kyle who was the victim of that unlawful attack. This element is consistent with self-defense on the facts of this case. The second element, imminence. The attack Kyle was defending himself against was actually in progress and so qualifies as an imminent attack. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Proportionality. By seeking to seize control of Kyle's rifle, Rosenbaum was apparently arming himself for the purpose of carrying out his earlier death threat against Kyle and, I would note, simultaneously attempting to disarm Kyle and leave him defenseless. Rosenbaum's attack is therefore deadly in nature, justifying a proportional deadly force defense by Kyle. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. On the element of avoidance, well, Wisconsin is a stand-your-ground state, so the element of avoidance would not normally apply in an otherwise lawful act of self-defense. Even if it did apply, however, Kyle was in desperate flight from Rosenbaum, who sustained his relentless pursuit until the point of actual contact. If avoidance did impose a legal duty to retreat, which it doesn't here, Kyle would have met that duty. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. And the final element, the fifth element, reasonableness, the circumstances facing Kyle would certainly justify a subjectively genuine fear of deadly bodily harm. And there's nothing about Kyle's perceptions or reactions to those events, which were those of an unreasonable person. This is readily accessible 
from the video and eyewitness accounts of what happened. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. In short, there would appear to be no reason to believe, to a reasonable degree of legal certainty, that the state can disprove beyond a reasonable doubt Kyle's claim of self-defense with respect to Rosenbaum, and we have to conclude, therefore, that the shooting of Rosenbaum by Kyle was lawful self-defense. What about the reckless conduct towards Richard McGinnis, count two in the criminal complaint? The sole grounds for the claim of felony reckless conduct towards Richard McGinnis appears to be found in a single sentence from the criminal complaint. Quote, McGinnis stated that he, McGinnis, had handled many ARs and that the defendant was not handling the weapon very well. Okay, even taken at face value, this is not a claim of recklessness. Recklessness is intentionally creating an unjustified risk of death or serious bodily injury and intentionally disregarding that risk. First, there's no indication of any particular intent on the part of Rittenhouse. Second, the phrase used in the criminal complaint, very well, he's not handling the rifle very well, falls vastly short of the threshold for a claim of criminal recklessness. Further, to the extent any risk may have been created by Kyle merely by having the gun in hand, the circumstances of the rioting, looting, and arson, besieging the surrounding blocks, and Kyle's subsequent need to use that rifle to save his own life would suggest that the risk was not unjustified and therefore would not be legally reckless. Indeed, a great many people, including, I would note, Gage Grosskreutz himself, were armed in the vicinity that evening. In short, there would appear to be no reason to believe to a reasonable degree of legal certainty that the state can prove Kyle's conduct with respect to Richard McGinnis to constitute reckless endangerment. And we have to conclude that Kyle's conduct with respect to McGinnis does not constitute reckless endangerment. What about the shooting of Anthony Huber, count three in the criminal complaint? Well, with respect to the shooting of Anthony Huber, the evidence in support of self-defense is, if possible, even stronger than it was in the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum. At this point, Kyle was in full flight towards the police line a block or so down the street, clearly fleeing for purposes of safety after having survived the attack by Rosenbaum. He was being pursued by an angry and violent mob during which he fell to the street. Whether pushed or tripped, the fall was clearly the result of fleeing his pursuers. Once fallen to the street, Kyle was immediately attacked by Huber, who swung a heavy skateboard at Kyle's head and Kyle shot him in response to this attack. Let's step through the five elements of self-defense again. Innocence. Clearly, Huber was the initial aggressor in this confrontation, as Kyle was not threatening Huber in any way until Huber struck with his skateboard. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Imminence. Huber's attack was in progress, and therefore imminent. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Proportionality. Striking someone in the head with a skateboard is readily capable of inflicting death or serious bodily injury, and thus a deadly force attack justifying a deadly force defense. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. The element of avoidance, again, Wisconsin is a stand-your-ground state, but in any case, safe retreat was not possible under the circumstances with Kyle falling to the street and being attacked there, and so Kyle would have satisfied any duty to retreat had it existed. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. And finally, reasonableness. The circumstances warranted a subjective fear of imminent death or serious bodily injury, and there would have been nothing unreasonable about such a perception. 
The element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. In short, there would appear to be no reason to believe to a reasonable degree of legal certainty that the state can disprove beyond a reasonable doubt Kyle's claim of self-defense with respect to Huber. And we have to conclude that the shooting of Huber by Kyle was lawful self-defense. That brings us to the shooting of Gabe Grosskreutz, count four of the criminal complaint. Now, near simultaneously with Huber's attack upon Kyle, Gabe Grosskreutz also closed on the fallen Kyle. Initially, Grosskreutz displayed his hands palm forward in an inoffensive manner. This, however, was merely a ruse to close proximity, as Grosskreutz quickly produced a pistol in his right hand as he reached Kyle. Kyle responded by shooting at Grosskreutz, striking him in the bicep, and causing the injured Grosskreutz to drop his pistol to the street. Let's step through the five elements of self-defense, innocence. Clearly, Grosskreutz was the initial aggressor in this confrontation, closing rapidly on the fallen Kyle with pistol in hand, as Kyle was not threatening Grosskreutz in any way until Grosskreutz approached him with pistol in hand. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Imminence. While the attack by Grosskreutz was in progress and therefore imminent, this element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Proportionality. Grosskreutz attacked Kyle with a pistol in hand, clearly a deadly force attack, justifying a deadly force defense. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. And the element of avoidance, again, Wisconsin is a stand-your-ground state, but in any case, safe retreat was not safely possible under the circumstances, and so Kyle would have satisfied any duty to retreat had it existed. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. And reasonableness, the circumstances warranted a subjective fear of imminent death or serious bodily injury, and there would have been nothing unreasonable about such a perception. This element is also consistent with self-defense on these facts. In short, there would appear to be no reason to believe to a reasonable degree of legal certainty that the state can disprove beyond a reasonable doubt Kyle's claim of self-defense with respect to Grosskreutz. And we have to conclude the shooting of Grosskreutz by Kyle was lawful self-defense. And that brings us to the reckless conduct towards an unknown male, count five of the criminal complaint. Among the first attacks upon Kyle when he initially fell to the street while running to the safety of the police line was a flying, stomping attack by an unknown male. Kyle fired at this individual but missed. Let's look at the five elements of self-defense here. Again, clearly the unknown male was the initial aggressor in this confrontation, jumping on a fallen Kyle who was no threat to him prior to his stomping attack. So this element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. The element of imminence, the attack by the unknown male was in progress and therefore imminent. So this element consistent with self-defense on these facts, proportionality, a full body falling drop kick by a grown man of this type is readily capable of causing serious bodily injury, making it a deadly force attack, justifying a deadly force response. So this element consistent with self-defense on these facts. Avoidance, we've covered it relentlessly. Wisconsin is a stand-your-ground state. In any case, safe retreat was not possible. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. And reasonableness, again, the circumstances warranted a subject to fear of eminent death or serious bodily injury, and there would have been nothing unreasonable about such a perception. This element is consistent with self-defense on these facts. Now, criminal recklessness is based upon an unjustified creation of a risk of death and intentionally ignoring that risk. In this case, the risk of death created by Kyle towards the unknown male by shooting at him was, to a reasonable degree of legal certainty, lawful self-defense. Therefore, 
not unjustified, but legally justified. And if it's justified, by definition, it's not criminally reckless. So we have to conclude Kyle's conduct with respect to the unknown male attacker does not constitute criminal reckless endangerment. And that brings us to the final count, the unlawful possession of a gun charge, count six in the criminal complaint. Now, given that this charge is a mere misdemeanor and that I've previously done a comprehensive legal analysis of this charge elsewhere, I'll simply direct you all to that analysis at lawofselfdefense.com slash Rittenhouse, where you can find all my aggregated coverage and analysis of the Rittenhouse case. Again, that's lawofselfdefense.com slash Rittenhouse. Further, a conviction on this charge would in no way diminish the self-defense justification and lack of criminal recklessness that we've already discussed with respect to all the other charges. So it's just really not that important, unless the jury might happen to choose it as kind of a compromise uh, conviction, so at least some verdict of guilt results. That will, of course, be up to the jury. I will note in passing that at a recent pretrial hearing, even Judge Schroeder himself expressed confusion at how the relevant gun law statute was to be applied. Uh, This suggests that the statute in question is unconstitutionally vague on its face. If so, the charge should either be dismissed before trial or alternatively, the jury should not be instructed on the charge before deliberations. Okay, folks, don't forget to join us all starting tomorrow for our daily coverage of the Rittenhouse trial, starting from jury selection and continuing through verdict and, heaven forbid it should come to this, sentencing. That's all I have for all of you today on this topic. Remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branco with Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.